This is Gilbert Andrew Garcia. Join me on my new radio show, A Tip from Gilbert. Talk, inspiration, and prayer every Monday from 11 to 11.45 at 96.9 FM, 1360 AM, KWWJ. Or you can call in at 832-570-8075. Write me at a tip from Gilbert at gmail.com. See you then. Houston. This is Gilbert Andrew Garcia, and you're here with a tip from Gilbert. You can let that play slightly softly there in the background, Mr. Uh, producer. I really love this song called 10,000 Reasons by Matt Redman. And it all comes down to, uh, I'm going to quote him when he says here, let me get to that quote. If you wake up one morning and you cannot think of a reason to bring God some kind of offering of thanks or praise, then you can be sure there's something wrong at your end of the pipeline and not his. This is from the writer, Matt Redman. And then he says, We live beneath an unceasing flow of goodness, kindness, greatness, and holiness. And every day we're given reason after reason why Jesus is so completely and utterly worthy of our highest and best devotion. We will play that song in its entirety at the end, and I'll go through some of the words in a moment. And you're here again with a tip from Gilbert at KWWJ. Keep walking with Jesus. And I have Mr. Richard Molina coming in all the way from Richard. Where are you now today? In California? Wonderful. Well, in a moment, listeners, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about Richard because this might very well be one of the most important episodes in my brief radio career that we've done. And I think you'll understand why in a moment. And you can call in and ask Richard or me a question at 832-570-8075 at any time today between, again, 11 to 11.45 here on KWWJ, and then again afterwards, we'll keep about five minutes going on Facebook. And let me just say that we all need to say a prayer for Ukraine. No matter who you are, whatever, what your political philosophy is, no matter what side you're on, at the end of the day, there are people losing their lives. There are people in trauma suffering, and, and they're just everyday people. Uh, there are soldiers fighting on both sides, uh, probably not realizing it was going to be like this because you never can know. And I just think we need to have a quick moment of silence there, Richard, for the people in Ukraine. 
you know, at some point, the whole humanity of the earth needs to get together, and we've got to do something about this unnecessary violence that goes on around the world, and that even goes on here in the Houston community. So please, let's bow our heads. Dear Lord, we pray for the people in Ukraine. We pray for the earth. We pray for all of humanity. And we pray that world leaders will come together and recognize there's nothing but human suffering here. And that they'll come to the table and cooler heads will prevail to put the end to this terrible violence that is happening. Uh, And when it happens anywhere, it's happening everywhere. In your name we pray. Amen. I also want to say that, you know, the elections happened and it was very interesting. Uh, Of course, we had people on the air here. Uh, We had uh, Miss Lozano. She she, uh, made it. She won without a runoff. We had, I'm trying to think who all we had. You know, of course, Molly Cook had an incredible um, performance. She did not win. But at the end of the day, you're talking about taking on the dean, a 50-year incumbent, with $12 million in their war chest uh, and all the establishment behind him. And she had to put together a shoestring campaign with very little money all in two months. Can you imagine putting together a campaign, an organization, and trying to win, trying to get your name out there because she's a first-time candidate all in two months? And here she won uh, 47.5% of the vote, if I'm not mistaken. Pretty amazing. Of course, Lena and Adrian both won. Uh, Jelana Jones, who's on the air with us, is in a runoff. Uh, if I left off anyone, I apologize in advance. But at the end of the day, uh, we applaud everyone who voted. Whether you voted Democrat or Republican or whether you voted from whomever you voted, please, people fought hard and people gave up their lives for that right to vote. And so we've got to exercise that and not take it for granted. We're here with Richard Molina. Richard's family is quite a historic family. And his uncle was Mr. Jose Campos Torres. And Richard, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, the story as the family, as y'all know it and have felt it and lived it, about your uncle. And I'm going to fill in some blanks. And of course, I'll talk later about this wonderful brochure that we have about uh, in honor of him and his family and the big celebration that will be happening coming up in April. But what what does it mean when you think about your uncle and you hear the stories from your mom and and so forth? Go ahead, Richard. Right, right. Um, Thank you, first of all, Gilbert, for having me on and um, all the work that you've been involved with us since us. Yeah, so the the story of my uncle, Joe Campos Torres, um, in 1977, we, we go back about 44 years. Uh, my uncle was a victim of police brutality in 1977, Houston, Texas. Uh, he was arrested for a disturbance over in the east end of downtown. He was then taken into custody, at which point um, there was a, an altercation that happened. There was a, a disturbance at a club that he was at, that he frequented in the neighborhood. 
during this disturbance, an altercation happened between him and the police officers. Uh, um, he was assaulted, uh, taken into custody, he, at which point they had took him down to downtown to a secluded area uh, in downtown Houston that the cops referred to at the time as the hole. It was a secluded area over off of by Buffalo Bayou where they would take uh, prisoners. And um, he was further assaulted, um, at which point they then tried to take him over to the city jail to have him uh, booked in. The jailer saw his condition and uh, instructed the arresting officers to take him to the general hospital, at which point, uh, instead of doing that, they took him back to the the spot known as a hole and further assaulted him, um, at which point... Uh, there was some racial slurs thrown his way, um, and they essentially just pushed him into the bayou. Um, there's some sources saying that he was handcuffed at the time, um, but he was pushed into the bayou after being assaulted um, to where his body was found three days later, uh, May 8th, 1977, which happened to fall on a Mother's Day that year. Um so in the, in the three days of his disappearing from May 5th to May 8th, you know, the family was looking around for him and stuff and they couldn't find him. Um, at which point, uh, one of my uncle's aunts, the great aunts, um, had found that the um, city had recovered a body from Buffalo Bayou and they wanted them to come down to see if they could identify him through personal belongings that were found on him, at which point they did. Uh, they went and found my grandmother. She was at a uh, theater with my mom and my aunts and stuff, and my uncle, my other uncles, uh, watching a movie. Um, and they were found at the movie theater by one of the great aunts and told what was happened, what had happened. Um, at which point, this was before it was known that it was at the hands of the police. Um, so immediately, uh, just the. Um, uh, the the grief of what happened then and then they it comes to find out that it was at the hands of the police um all kinds of trials and, and, and stuff ensued from then on um so it was about a about a year worth of trials and, and stuff like that about six officers were involved in this case four of which um received immunity for their testimony um, two of the officers were charged and received a year of probation and a dollar fine and court costs, um, which added insult to injury, added uh, fuel to the fire when it came to the uh, Mexican-American community and the community at large, you know, because my uncle was a um, Vietnam veteran, Vietnam era veteran at the time when this happened. And um, so it was outrageous that something like this can happen at that time. Um, but, you know, growing up in, 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 in that environment, you know, I was born in 1982. It was about five years after it had happened. Um, and, and hearing the stories growing up, it, 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 we heard the stories from a personal perspective, from a, a family perspective. You know, my, my mom and, and my other aunts really looked up to my uncle as a father figure. He was the eldest out of uh, seven or eight children that my grandmother had. 
Um, and it was very traumatic, but at the same time for us as children, for me and my brother, uh, my brother especially, he, my brother since passed away. Um, in 2011, he served uh, in the U.S. Army. He did two tours and passed away in the second tour in Afghanistan. Um, but my uncle's story was very empowering uh, to us early on. It was very uh, um, inspirational, you know, hearing the way that he took care of the family growing up and the way he was out in the neighborhood. The um, thoughts he had about starting a uh, martial arts school and teaching community children martial arts and stuff like that. Um, these stories really um, resonated with us. Um, especially with my brother, and it, it, it inspired him to join the military. And and, and, and um, so we always kind of held a sense of pride when it came to the stories of my uncle, and it pushed us into doing something with that decades later, and here we are, 2022. And uh, this, this is the, the progress, and, and the projects that we're working on now have been almost in, in decades in the making, and stuff. So it really comes from a, 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 um, uh, you know, we see the what the story means to, to the community at large, but on a personal uh, family perspective, it, it really means a lot more to us than that. Well, let me, I mean, Richard, right now I have so many emotions going through my mind, my heart, my soul. First, the most important thing I want to say is, you know, you're almost like, I don't know, either super mature for your age or like a holy man because it's like you're saying these things and yet you have no anger. You have no bitterness. I mean, you said it so, you know, I don't want to say shallantly, but you you say it with great power just in your soft tone. Uh, and I really admire you for that. And I've met your mom and I admire her because she's kind of the same way. And it's just amazing to me because I think I would be like, oh, my God, I'd be so angry. I, I just can't help it. I guess I'm a small person. But I'd be like, you know, damn it, those guys. And, you know, I, I would just be angry. What sustains you, Richard? What sustains you? Right. You know, make no mistake, you know, um, early on, especially throughout the 90s and stuff, uh, the anger and uh, resentment was very real. It was very real. And uh, when we talk about things like generational trauma and uh, um, enduring that as a child, um, you know, we, we, we saw it. We saw it all. And uh, for a long time, uh, decades almost, uh, my family refused to work with city officials. My family refused to work with um, the Houston Police Department and the... Um, in sort of the actions that we're engaged in now uh, for a lot of the fact that um, there was still a lot of anger involved. And the the time in society has since then kind of shifted in its perspective of these issues when it comes to police brutality. Uh, these things are taken a little more seriously. The, the problem is really understood a little bit more. And I think that's what's uh, what sustains us now, what keeps us going now is that glimmer of hope that things are changing, things are, um, eyes are being opened. Um, but for a long time, yeah, it was a lot of anger and a lot of uh, trauma still. But we have since as a family gotten to a point to where we understand the real work of what we're trying to do. And um, being angry doesn't really um, benefit any of that. Well, you know, 
amen to that statement. I, I totally get that. But, you know, I, you used the word a couple of times, assault, and I just want to put it in, I don't know, my own feeling terms because it's just outrageous. So he was really beaten so badly. That's, I mean, he was beaten so badly that the jailer said, you need to take him to the hospital. We can't even process him. Isn't that correct? I mean, can you imagine that, what he went through in, the, in those moments of terror and fear and the punishment? Um, and then if I'm not mistaken, when they took him to the hole, they said, let's see if the wetback can swim. Right. And, of course, we all know that's a, the derogatory term for Latinos. Uh, I know we have a caller already here, uh, Richard, so hold on. Uh, caller, are you there? Yes, I'm here. You have me, Gilbert Garcia, tip from Gilbert, and you have Mr. Richard Molina uh, of the Jose Campos Torres family. Go ahead there, Jason. What you got for us? Yeah, so I'm just calling in again. I appreciate you telling your story. It's an amazing story, and unfortunately, it's something that, you know, we all want to say that it's in the past, but you still see it going on today. And what I just want to ask you is, you know, recently we had the whole George Floyd um, situation up in Minnesota. And for all the people that have been, you know, disillusioned with the justice system and the police officers, what kind of advice can you give them to not be that way, not to have your heart filled with um, darkness, but to say that, yes, we can still move forward. We can still find the good in everything. What type of advice would you have for people that, you know, just feel like they've been let down by the system over and over again? But to keep going and keep fighting. You know, Jason, that's, you know, I'm, I guess I want to ask that same question because, again, I don't want darkness in my heart. And, at the, you know, Richard, tell us. Right. So, you know, in, in a lot of this work over the years, over the decades, we've met many uh, families that have experienced uh, similar events as my family. And, um, um, you know, a lot of the uh, fulfillment of of you know having something like this happen and and being able to have a sense of doing something about it is a um, a very powerful thing. You know, uh, a lot of the times we go through life and not really understanding the power of own of our own voice, the power of our own actions. You know, just as normal everyday citizens. And you know, I, I really it's hard to overlook the anger and um, uh, frustration when these types of things happen. Uh, but once you overlook that, coming from a point of what can we do about it, uh, that then becomes something a little bit more. It becomes empowering, you know, and I encourage anyone that's been through similar situations um, to, you know, uh, find their own voice, um, reach out within the community because there is people out there that uh, are in similar shoes, that have done this similar thing. Uh, we, we've, over the years, have been in contact with, like I said, many different families that have experienced similar situations, not just through uh, the police and court systems, but um, families that are uh, victims of violence in general. Uh, just recently, we had the case of, of Arlene Alvarez, a nine-year-old that was uh, shot while she was driving with her family uh on valentine's day over in houston and uh, we've been in close contact with the family there helping them out um they, they they're they're trying to um get this story out there they're trying to get the uh, issue of gun violence in our city out there uh they're showing up at the courthouses and stuff and we're just right there with them just helping them out along the way and stuff and uh i think that's where a lot of the 
situations start to feel less, um, they start to feel more empower, empowering, you know, these situations start to become, oh, we're not just victims, but actually we're trying to be out there and do something about it, you know, for the sake of our loved ones and, and, and their honor. Well, let's go back. And Jason, thank you for that question, my friend. Uh, Richard, let's go back for a second. So he was somewhere having fellowship with friends. There was a ruckus. Police were called. He was taken away. And then he was beaten so badly when they took him to get arrested and processed in the jail, they wouldn't process him. Um, You know, how did that first trial go? Uh, you know, what does your mom tell you about the trial? Because when you hear they got $1 fine and probation, this is trial number one. And listeners, we're going to talk about trial number two in a moment because this is a very famous case. But trial number one, a dollar fine probation. I mean, how, what was their defense and how did they get that? I mean, it just seems, you know, you know, what was the, you know, who were the makeup of the jury? I mean, what was the reason for sort of barely a slap on the wrist? Right, right. Yeah, so um, that was, and that was part of the the outrage, you know, once those um, um, verdicts and stuff came back in the initial trial, that was part of the outrage of, of not only was this allowed to happen to a member of the community, um, but then the the and a uh, veteran for and, and a and a, retro, a veteran know, Richard in the face of, of not just my family but the um, Mexican American community in general, um, and you know I've done extensive research on the trials and, and went through the archives for a good number of years, uh, aside from hearing. Uh, my family's stories from being at the trials and stuff, but it was just, you know, when, when we when we start to look back at the history of, of the police institution and how they set themselves up to be able to get away with doing things like this, it, we're looking at a long number of years of trials of similar situations to where it's first and foremost deeply rooted in racism deeply rooted in racism um, that goes to how they did things within the system to move the trial to Huntsville, which is a well-known uh, place in a city in Texas where the, um, where the prison system, there's a big prison out there. It's a, it's a, a prison town. A lot of people that live there work in the prison systems and all right. that kind of stuff. Uh, so it was a, it was a move to try to gain a favorable uh, jury, to, to gain a favorable outcome, you know, and it was a, a tactics that had been used in many other cases before, um, um, right down to like Emmett Till's trial, you know, where they, where they, where they, um, the, the people that accosted Emmett Till, they did all kinds of little tactics and stuff to kind of get them off, which they did. And um, it was just kind of a similar thing, you know, and it's, it's, important to really dissect these um happenings to understand how they're doing this and how they've done this and in and, and, and hopes to prevent it from the future and then how did the community react because i've i've heard from people who said they remember the riots and they remember the and it wasn't until the verdict that people really got angry tell us about that 
And I was told that there were marches. Johnny Mata, Isidro Garza, and others, great LULAC leaders, told me that, that people had a dollar pinned in their shirt to really protest that. How could it be a dollar fine for beating up and killing not only a, a, a human being, but a veteran? Right, right, yeah. So after... Um after the trial came down, you know, it was, it was a few months before the one year anniversary of the incident. And, um, there had been protests, town hall meetings and stuff like that. There's a, there were a few different organizations at that time that were really spearheading the movement against police brutality and other kinds of, uh, corruption within the governmental system. Uh, so when this happened, it was just, uh, you know, we, we, we look back in recent times at the, uh, George Floyd incident and when the George Floyd incident happened, it was such a, it was right in our face. You know, it was, it was, there was no question about the brutality of what had happened to Mr. Floyd, uh, so much so to where it kind of shook the nation. It shook the nation into kind of, uh, challenging us to, look at this issue from a different perspective um and it was a similar uh feeling back in 77 78 so when 78 came around the one year anniversary there was a there's a well-known uh chicano music festival uh in houston uh uh hosted by daniel bustamante he had been he's been working on that for decades and I believe in 1977, 1978, that was his first or second um, Chicano festival that they had over at Moody Park in Northside of Houston. Um, and this was one of the more larger gatherings of uh, Mexican-American, the Mexican-American community. So when that day was happening, the verdict had already been out. There was already an outcry for justice within the community. So when this particular day was happening, there was a heavy police presence there at the park and um, uh, police interactions with the community weren't necessarily um, taken very well. Um, police were definitely there to police, not to interact with the community. They were there to, and they showed up, uh, from what I've heard from people that were there, they showed up with that mentality of we're here to police the community type of deal. and. Um, well, Richard, Slowly but surely, things had started getting heated up, getting heated up. Uh, Richard, let me interrupt one second, if you don't um, mind. Organizations there that were following the trial throughout the years that were Richard, there can you hear me? With my family that were um, there helping organize town hall meetings and stuff. One uh, particular member, in particular, uh, Travis Morales, uh, I forget the name of the organization that he was working with at the time, uh, but Travis Morales has been one of the the activists that I have remembered from as a kid, always being involved with the family, always um, being there with the family and trying to help us navigate this um, activism work. Hey, and, Richard. Uh, he was one of the ones. Can you hear was... Richard, can you hear me? Yes. I'm yes. going to interrupt real quick, if you don't mind, because we have a caller. So I apologize for that. Yeah. Please, I hope you have your chain of thought. Uh, do I have a Matthew on the line? Yes, yes, hi. Matthew, you have me, Gilbert Garcia, tip from Gilbert, and Mr. Richard Molina of the Jose Campos Torres family. Go ahead there, Matthew. What you got for us? 
So I have a question for Richard, and it kind of has to do along the lines with how do you stay strong as a person of color during times like this? How do you stay strong, and what advice would you give to somebody of color in making sure that they just, kids in general, because kids see this, and maybe they have anger in their hearts, and they want to stay strong, and everything that you've done in your life has really uh, impacted all of us, and I'm sure your uncle is very proud of you, and what do you think he would say to us as well? Thank you. Thank you for that question. Um, you know, when, when speaking to, um, you know, the youth and, 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 and people dealing with this and seeing this and being affected by it, um, it's real easy to get lost in that anger, right? It's real easy to uh, just accept the fact that this was done to us and now I'm here angry and live the rest of my life like that. It's real easy to fall into that. Um, but it's, it's, it's um, impactful to take that anger and to feel like you need to do something about it. And, and when we talk about actions and doing something about it, it, it it's a, a broad spectrum. You know, we can, at the very least, we can educate ourselves on these different situations. And moving forward, uh, we can reach out to different community uh, activists and advocates that are in this line of work, you know. Um, but a lot of it starts within ourselves, you know, choosing choosing not to um, choosing not to fall into that, right? We, we, we make the choice to um, do something about it. And, and uh, the youth really came out when uh, the George Floyd incident happened. You know, we had 60,000 plus in downtown Houston. And it was a great thing to see, you know. Um, you know, Richard, I was there. It, it was one of the most moving experiences I've ever had. It was, it was, be it was beautiful. It was, be it was sad, but yet it was beautiful. Um, and you felt a sense of brotherhood no matter who you were in that crowd. I didn't mean to interrupt you there, Richard. Actually, no, Richard, I, I'm going to take it. I'm going to come up full circle, Richard, which is um, so here we are today. And I'm pleased to report a couple of things, and then I'm going to let you take it away, which is we're going to be sort of recognizing this event. And given this event, its moment in sort of not only national history, but Houston his history, because the more we can face things that maybe we're not proud of, the better we can heal and the more we can get on the other side. And there's going to be a big event here in April, and I'll, and I'll let you talk about that. I do want to give a big shout out to uh, Mayor Turner, who's going to be supporting it in the city. I want to especially give a big shout out to uh, Commissioner Adrian Garcia, who his office in all commissioners court where, where we were there, your family and me and others, members of LULAC, and they're allocating $85,000 to this event. Yours truly is going to pop in 15000 I was very moved by it. Uh, I'm also very grateful to know that uh, council members uh, Gallegos and Cisneros are also going to be pitching in money. It's going to be, I would call it, a celebration of life uh, and to really put together a place which will be a destination for people to come, reflect, meditate, one of those sorts of hallowed places, like when you see the Martin Luther King Memorial in D.C. or something like that to really reflect. Why don't you tell us what's going to happen in April? 
Right. So in April, um, we've so over the years uh, in the past a little over a decade, we had been really um, trying to think about how to commemorate my uncle's story via the land in downtown where he lost his life. Um, in recent years, my mother has started a solidarity march on the anniversary of my uncle's death. Uh, we're going on the sixth annual one this year. Um, part of our march, we end up in downtown over by the hole where he lost his life. Uh, in, in recent months, the city has been um, kind of redoing downtown, the trails and stuff like that. Um, we got with the city and different officials on trying to come to an agreement on how to commemorate that land. We had been thinking, how do we do this? How do, how do we do it? We, we, we were thinking small to begin with, maybe a marker, maybe a plaque or something like that. Um, but it kind of just, uh, snowballed into the idea of creating a place that will not only physically memorialize my uncle and his story, but also serve a sort of purpose uh, towards this uh, problem, towards this idea of criminal justice reform. Uh, the spot in downtown is coincidentally located right in the criminal justice district, uh, right in the middle of the courthouses, the jail system and stuff. So we're building a space to come and reflect on my uncle's story and all the changes that it had brought about, but also to begin to create the conversation on how do we tackle this idea of police violence uh, and everything that goes along with it, you know, because this is a multi-layered issue, you know, it's, it's, it's a police violence, but we are trying to dissect and look at the different causes of that create an environment where things like this are allowed to happen. So this this is going to, April 2nd is going to be the unveiling of the land um, and our future plans to have this idea grow. You know, currently I do uh, seminars over at the police academy. I get, I'm lucky enough to be able to have conversations with police cadets that are going into this um, job field. And uh, we want to kind of continue that kind of work and that idea of starting these conversations um, around this area. So it's it's, it's going to be and, a and talk about the un event. talk about the unveiling of the incredible mural. And by the way, while you were talking, I went through this incredible booklet that was put together. And when you look at this booklet, there's some extraordinary pictures in here. Uh, we went to the Chronicle archives. And you can see some of the the family members. You can see some of the people. You can see the hole. You can see when they were dredging the bayou. Uh, you can see uh, pictures of Jose Campos Torres. You can see people there praying for him. You can see the rendition of what we're hoping in the future will be a place for prayer and peace. You can see the unveiling of the mural. Talk about that mural and what it means to you. And it's going to be right there at the side of the building there. Right. So we um, we're unveiling ideas for a mural that we have been working on um, for the past few months as well. And it's it's kind of um, not, not just an homage to my uncle and, and what he endured, but also to 
the story in general, you know, because over the decades, my uncle's uh, image name has become this idea of this movement of police brutality and police reform. Uh, but we also want to take it a step back and start to begin to humanize my uncle and really just tell the story of my uncle. Um, and with this mural, we're hoping that it'll um, start to kind of portray that image of, of what he stood for, not just how, what he died for, uh, but but what he meant before his time in the service and stuff like that. And um this mural is going to be on the side of the Wilson building, which is about a three, four story tall building. And uh, that'll be one of the main points that we're hoping to unveil on April 2nd. Well, let me ask you this. How does it feel after all these years and all this time? And there's an incredible picture here in this booklet with both Mayor Turner and Chief Finner. How does it feel to get an apology from the mayor of the city of Houston and the police chief of the city of Houston. Right. So that was, um, that came out, that came about in conversations that started maybe about two, three years ago when Chief Acevedo was still in office. Um, my family and my mother in particular, we didn't really have a good standing with Chief Acevedo at the time. There was a lot of things that were happening within the police department that called on us as police brutality activists to confront um, one of which being the botched drug raid that happened over um, to Regina Nichols and Dennis Tuttle's uh, two civilians over in the Houston that were victims of a false drug raid and essentially just lost their lives. Um, um, so that this conversation started around then. Uh, what it, would it look like to have essentially the police department offered an apology to the family, something that has never happened before. Um, these projects and these things that we're doing now, a lot of this has never happened before, has never um, been brought to the table. Um, so working out with that apology with uh, Chief Inner and uh, Mayor Turner was something special, you know, and, and when it officially happened last June, uh, first and foremost, we were worried about my grandmother. She was the main person that we were worried about how she would feel about this, being that she's had... As Richard is um, getting his audio back, we do have a few more minutes here. And let me just say that I think it's an incredible story. And I have met with his mother. Uh, I think she's a beautiful person. And in many ways, I hope this gives some type of closure uh, because people just need closure. And can you imagine uh, Richard's grandmother to be reminded every Mother's Day uh, of this event? Because that's when they found the body, on Mother's Day. Can you imagine being reminded of something that's supposed to be so wonderful as Mother's Day that it's somehow tied into this incredible hurt and pain? And we know there are wonderful men and women in blue that protect us every day. But like in other industries and uh, in other walks of life, there are bad people that do bad things. And that's why we've got to make sure we're vigilant 
And I think most importantly, the work that Richard's doing to talk with the cadets, to sensitize them about other cultures and other people, that's really the first step. I could tell you my own story as Richard, just let us know when you're there. My own story as we were building a home, my wife and I, and we're very proud of our home. It's going to be hopefully our very last home. And we were celebrating, I forgot what holiday it was, whether it's Mother's Day or something. And like a good Latino family, there were a bunch of us there. And like a good Latino family, we went to see the home because we wanted to show the home being built to my extended family. So like a good Latino family, four cars park in the front yard and 25 of us come out. And we're there going through the house, looking through the house. And there was a lady, a senior uh, a Caucasian white lady that I did not know her. And she's in our front yard staring up at us. Cause remember this was just the wooden pieces and there's no walls. And she's just staring at us for a quite extended period of time. It was very uncomfortable. And I just waved at her. Well, as we were leaving, as we opened up, because we had the hurricane fence in front, we opened it up an enormous, large, strong, powerful, uh, officer came in Caucasian male and I mean he startled me because it was right at the same time and he was very forceful he goes what are you doing here and I said well this is my home officer he goes well we heard there's a disturbance and I said officer there's no disturbance I'm just here showing my family my home and then he realized it like a light bulb went off saying oh and you see, imagine if it was nighttime. This was like at 1 o'clock, bright sunlight, daylight. But you could see how these things can happen. Imagine if it was dark uh, and he couldn't tell us or we couldn't tell him. Imagine if the spookiness of being dark. Imagine if anyone had had something to drink, if we had been celebrating something and we're not in 100% of our uh, faculties. I mean, just imagine what could have happened. All because of what? because someone said there was a disturbance because we were Hispanic. Uh, at the end of the day, we've got to all realize we are one people, this is one earth, this is one culture, and we're in this together as a community. It's one Houston. I think we may have lost Richard, and I know we're coming at the end of time. I think Richard is such an extraordinary human being because through it all, he has maintained really the rock in that family. And when we were there at Commissioner's Court, his mom was crying. I think we were all crying. And uh, it was a beautiful thing. And so I hope uh, everyone will attend this event. We'll talk a lot more about it between here and April as I'll give more and more details as it's being shaped together. But it should be very nice with speakers, with high school band, and other sorts of things to commemorate uh, Mr. Jose Campos Torres and what happened. So I know we're running up against time. Let's go ahead and play that song. And I think that when you think about uh, Mr. Jose Campos Torres and you think about, uh, you know, the last word with his family here after all these years, it's just one of those reasons to just give thanks. And that's what this song's all about, 10,000 reasons. If you ever doubted anything why to praise God, just listen to this song, and he's going to give you many reasons.
I think we're now off radio, KWWJ, but we still, I think we have Richard Molina back. Do we have you back, Richard? Okay, wonderful. We can hear you now. Great, Richard. Uh, we're going to stay on Facebook here a few minutes. You can go ahead and uh, cut the song there, Mr. Producer. Um, I said a few words there at the end, Richard, just really commenting about your family and letting people know that we're going to talk more about what's happening in April. Over the next couple of shows, I'm going to let people know about it, make sure they know about it. It's really a celebration of, of life, togetherness, brotherhood, sisterhood, community, one earth, one Houston, one community. Uh, let me give you the last word here, Richard, about number one, how's your mom doing? And number two, how are you doing uh, with all of this? So let's start with your mom. Right. Um, you know, so with my mother, she's she's a strong individual. You know? And by the way, she's, that's that's your that's um, Jose Campos Torres's sister. So she lived all this. So right. go ahead, Richard. She was, uh, she was about 12 years old when this happened. Um, and, uh, you know, she she's lived with it along with the rest of my family um for decades and um in in recent years she's um been more better spiritually um you know uh, that this event 
really wore on on their um you know their livelihood and be able to live life happily um but she's she's very grateful where we're at and what we're doing uh and that's what is keeping us going uh you know with me personally this is a um a lot of work a lot of a lot of uh staying on it and stuff um but it's that sense of the urgency of this needing to happen that's uh, kind of keeping us going, kind of keeping us um, our heads in the game and stuff like that. Uh, um, everything else is just kind of day-to-day things that we all deal with and stuff. But um, like I said, I, I've, I've spoken with different uh, family members of victims and stuff like that. And uh, when they hear about the work that we're doing, it offers them some inspiration. It, 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 it lets them know that, hey, we don't have to just deal with this on our own. You know, we could do different things, you know, and I've had uh, different family members of police brutality victims that are hearing about the work that I do at the police academy. And they're like, oh, well, how can I get involved? I would I would love to be able to do something like that. So those kinds of things kind of keep me and keep us going. Well, Richard, that is wonderful. I am hugging you on the phone, as they say. I don't know if you can see it, but I'm hugging you on the phone. And, you know, we're going to have an incredible celebration of your uncle here in April. Uh, and let me just say to all of our listeners on KWWJ and again on Facebook, Spotify, and all the other social media, how much we appreciate you tuning in, listening. This is Gilbert Garcia with a tip from Gilbert here on KWWJ, which is Keep Walking with Jesus, of course, on 1360 AM, 96.9 FM. You can always tune in at 11 to 11.45 on every Monday. And again, that call-in number, this only works as much as you participate, 832-570-8075. If you want to talk about what's going on at your church, what's going on at your community, you just call in and tell us because that's what this is meant to be. And of course, you can email me at a tip from Gilbert at gmail.com. And so let me just say to Richard Molina, the Jose Campos Torres family and everybody else, uh, let's just again pray for us to really get through this period of time, whether it's COVID, whether it's all this meanness, whether it's now Ukraine, we've just got to always, always remember it's one community and we need each other. So this is Gilbert Andrew Garcia, tip from Gilbert saying, we'll see you next time. This is Gilbert Andrew Garcia. Join me on my new radio show, A Tip from Gilbert. Talk, inspiration, and prayer every Monday from 11 to 11.45 at 96.9 FM, 1360 AM, KWWJ. Or you can call in at 832-570-8075. Write me at a tip from Gilbert at gmail.com. See you then.